Chapter 12, Vietnam, The Advisory Years to 1965 by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Chapter 12, Farmgate and the Vietnamese Air Force. Farmgate Detachment 7 through 10 and miscellaneous units contained 838 U.S. Air Force personnel by the end of 1961. Together, these units made up a modest strike, photo reconnaissance, and airlift force. But far more significant, they were the nucleus of a rapidly expanding American effort. Since the rules of engagement confined U.S. Air Force planes to missions the Vietnamese were unable to perform, strengthening the Vietnamese Air Force was all-important. The 1st Fighter Squadron at Bien Hoa owned 20 AD-6s, each capable of flying one operational sortie per day. The 2nd Fighter Squadron at Nha Trang was being readied for combat. Because it was to receive 30 T-28As and 14 T-28Bs, the pilots would require transition training in gunnery, bombing, and rocketry. The 1st, 2nd, and 3rd liaison squadrons had 15 L-19s apiece and needed more pilots. Hence, additional officers would undergo flight training in the United States. The 86 pilots were proficient in daytime flight, but their former carrier aircraft lacked landing lights. This and the frequently inoperable flight instruments prevented pilots from gaining experience in night and all-weather flying. They showed slight interest in flying night combat, even though the Viet Cong operated mostly during the hours of darkness. To secure combat missions, Colonel King had proved that T-28s and B-26s could fly night missions under flare light furnished by SC-47s. But when saddled with training the Vietnamese, the Farmgate commander was surprised and disappointed. He continued to discuss with General Anthus, 2nd Advon commander, whether training was the cover for combat or the primary mission. As King later frankly admitted, he resisted Anthus's instructions. Grudgingly, Farmgate commenced the training. Vietnamese AD-6 pilots served as crew members on B-26s and T-28s, but disliked flying in the T-28 rear seats. Yet they could not take over the front seat on combat missions until they were qualified in every respect. At that point, no need existed for a farm gate instructor in the rear seat. Backseat combat training was more political than practical. The basing of farm gate and the Vietnamese 86s at Bien Hoa might have eased combined missions, but the Air Operations Center went on issuing separate orders. Colonel King nevertheless promoted training and demonstrated that air detachments could operate from remote locations a long while. This success eventually moved the 1st Fighter Squadron to stage two AD-6s each to play coup in Da Nang. King also sent four T-28 pilots to Nha Trang to give Vietnamese instructors flight training. More to Farmgate's liking was the mission of January 3, 1962. Alerted to Viet Cong sampans drawn up under camouflage south of Saigon, Colonel King and Lieutenant Colonel Robert L. Gleason made an afternoon flight and took photographs of the exact spot. Shortly after dark, King led a bomb and rocket strike. The SC-47 flare ship approached the target area with the T-28s in trail and about 2,000 feet higher. After the flares ignited, the strike aircraft swooped down and demolished the enemy boats. Photos revealed that one 500-pound bomb dropped by Captain William E. Doherty scored a perfect strike in the middle of the Sampans. Such rapid reaction induced the Joint Operations Center to place an SC-47 on strip alert, ready to join T-28s and B-26s in night action. While these tactics failed to wipe out enemy units, they forced the Viet Cong to break off attacks and fade into the jungle. Meanwhile, Vietnamese C-47 crews were sufficiently trained by February 1962 to fly night missions with Farmgate. Farmgate experience in the first months of 1962 
dictated a change in ordnance loads. The detachment sharply cut back on general-purpose bombs and shifted from the 250-pound bomb to the M1A2 cluster of 620-pound bombs. By June, Farmgate upped its use of rockets, napalm, and strafing. Sometimes more than one canister of napalm was required to burn a hole in the ground cover. Strike aircraft inhibited the Viet Cong from firing. If the air crews spied the source, they quickly opened up a formidable firepower. The T-28 packed two 50-caliber machine guns, the B-26-8. Both planes carried bombs and rockets. The white smoke of the M-19 marker dissipated too swiftly, while the air crews rarely saw the red smoke of the M-18 through the jungle canopy. Smoke bombs in general were unreliable, and the method of dropping them on poorly defined targets was most ineffective. The first combined American-Vietnamese air operation occurred near the end of December 1961. Two U.S. Army helicopter companies whisked 360 Vietnamese troops to five landing zones in the Viet Cong-dominated Zone D, then several days later brought in additional troops. A Vietnamese L-19 forward air controller and two 86 bombers orbited the area but saw no targets. The troops failed in their main mission, capture of a radio transmitter, but killed two Viet Cong, wounded one, and captured 46 suspects. A larger operation took place on January 5, 1962, to rescue prisoners in a Viet Cong camp near Saigon. A Vietnamese forward air controller directed AD-6s, T-28s, and B-26s to fly preparatory strikes. Under this cover, 31 H-21 helicopters shuttled in a thousand Vietnamese troops. These efforts went for naught. The information about the prison camp proved to be erroneous. A number of the problems in search-and-destroy operations stemmed from three factors. Preliminary air reconnaissance tended to destroy surprise, plans on occasion were too complex for the fledgling Vietnamese Air Force to carry through, and coordination between ground and air units was weak. The air defense system likewise left much to be desired. Since the Soviet Union had transport aircraft at Hanoi, a key aim of the American presence was to deter this airlift from extending to Laos and from affording air support to the Viet Cong. Rumors in early 1962 told of Viet Cong in the Central Highlands receiving secret air supply drops. Time and again, the air warning radars at Tan Son Nut and Da Nang, together with the light radar at Pleiku, picked up unidentified tracks. At times, these turned out to be tricks of the atmosphere, but often were U.S. Army aircraft on flights the reporting center knew nothing of. On the other hand, the Da Nang radar could not detect planes flying at low and middle levels because the terrain to the west screened them. Furthermore, the AD-6s, T-28s, and B-26s were unsuitable for intercepting communist aircraft penetrating South Vietnamese airspace. In February 1962, General O'Donnell called for unified air action. To establish law and order in the air, he suggested that the Air Operations Center control and coordinate all air operations, including helicopter combat support. Two mutinous Vietnamese flyers first tested the air defense system designed to signal communist intrusion. On the morning of February 26, 1962, the two diverted their AD-6s from a planned strike in the Delta and zeroed in on President Diem's palace. The first fighter squadron scrambled two flights of AD-6s to intercept the rebels, but the planes merely gathered hits from small arms fire. Farmgate aircraft took to the air to elude possible destruction on the ground. Anti-aircraft fire downed one of the two attacking planes, and its pilot was captured. The other escaped to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, where he emerged unscathed from a crash landing. Interrogation of the captured flyer confirmed that the two pilots were engaged in a vendetta against Diem's brother, Ngo Dinh Nu. Although there appeared to be no general plot against the government, Diem grounded the Vietnamese Air Force temporarily. Later, he permitted the Vietnamese strike planes to carry only 20mm ammunition. 
Still later, he ostensibly authorized the planes to carry a full array of ordnance, but the Joint General Staff restricted bomb loads for missions in two and three corps. Ambassador Nolting secured permission from Washington for Farmgate aircraft to support ground operations. To dispel the impression that the United States was taking over the fighting, AD-6s had to accompany American planes. In March 1962, a total of 1,861 incidents, attacks, acts of terrorism, sabotage, and subversion, stirred apprehension that the communists were about to step up the war. Pleiku radar on the evening of the 19th showed seven unknown flight tracks over the central highlands. Farmgate scrambled a B-26 from Bien Hoa, and when it reached the area, radar control placed the aircraft directly over one of the tracks. The crew saw nothing. The next day, reconnaissance pilots noticed some bundles in the trees. On the night of the 20th, Tan Son Newt radar detected unknown tracks leading out of Cambodia. Two Farmgate T-28s were scrambled, but the tracks faded. Soon after these T-28s were recalled, Pleiku reported 10 to 15 low-altitude tracks emerging from Cambodia. One SC-47 and two RB-26s were dispatched from Bien Hoa. The SC-47 dispensed flares while the RB-26s searched in vain. Upset over the sharp rise in Viet Cong incidents, President Diem asked for U.S. jet interceptors to deal with enemy overflights. Ambassador Nolting quickly cleared the request with Washington. On March 22nd, the 405th Tactical Fighter Wing deployed a detachment of the 509th Fighter Interceptor Squadron from Clark Air Base to Tan Son Newt. The detachment's aircraft consisted of three single-seat F-102s and one TF-102 with side-by-side -side seating. The Joint Chiefs of Staff authorized Americans to engage and destroy hostile aircraft encountered over South Vietnam. The speedy arrival of the F-102s pleased the Vietnamese government. Still, the air defense system was far from perfect. In training exercises, the F-102s flew much too fast to intercept the slow liaison planes that acted as enemy intruders. Experience also taught that two pilots in a TF-102 had a better chance to intercept than one pilot in an F-102. Further TF-102s were therefore drawn from the 5th and 13th Air Forces. On July 21st, Admiral Felt ordered three Navy AD-5Q interceptors from QB Point, Philippines, to relieve the F-102s. From then on, F-102s and Navy interceptors alternated six-week tours of air defense duty. As air defense and traffic control improved, the unknown radar tracks diminished. To help radar tell friendly from enemy planes, MACV on August 22nd ordered every American military aircraft to emit identification friend or foe impulses if equipped to do so. When months passed without enemy air activity, General Harkins said it was certain that there was no air battle in Vietnam and there are no indications that one will develop. The sudden jump in Viet Cong incidents during March 1962 led U.S. Air Force officers to raise the question of enlarging Farmgate with four B-26s now in the Far East and with four T-28s. They reasoned that B-26s were the best tactical aircraft for counterinsurgency, T-28s were needed for detachments at smaller airfields, and Vietnamese forces were still learning how to use air power with ground operations. General Harkins and Ambassador Nolting backed the proposal. Defense Secretary McNamara, however, noted that the Vietnamese 2nd Fighter Squadron was becoming operational. He asked how much longer American pilots had to fly with the Vietnamese. General Anthus replied that Farmgate would have to serve as a demonstration force and to check out the state of Vietnamese training and standardization for quite a while. McNamara okayed the request, but delivery of the planes to Farmgate was delayed due to the Vietnamese Air Force buildup. During General LeMay's Vietnam visit in April 1962, the initial expansion of Vietnamese strike aircraft neared its end. The 30 U.S. Air Force C-47 pilots assigned to the 1st Transportation Group had released seasoned Vietnamese pilots to fighter cockpits. Moreover, 25 T-28 pilots were combat-ready for the 2nd Fighter Squadron. 
With 30 flying hours a month planned for T-28s and 25 for the AD-6s, the Vietnamese could complete 140 T-28 and 55 AD-6 sorties each week. Since the training of T-28 pilots was drawing to a close, Farmgate found it harder to get Vietnamese crewmen for its flights. Though LeMay noticed marked improvement among the Vietnamese, he doubted they would meet all the operational demands for some time to come. Because Farmgate was flying less than it could, LeMay wanted the crews to log more missions. This would allow American airmen rotating through Vietnam to attain valued experience that might well be needed elsewhere. He suggested relaxing the restrictions calling for a Vietnamese crewman to be aboard Farmgate planes and confining Farmgate to offensive missions beyond the competence of the Vietnamese. General LeMay won little support for these proposals in Washington. Secretary McNamara sought to shave American participation in Vietnam so as to attain an all-out Vietnamese military effort. Counterinsurgency doctrine required indigenous forces to fight their own war. McNamara was thus interested in having the Vietnamese take over the Farmgate Plains as soon as possible. Hampered by the original rules and restrictions and the scarcity of Vietnamese trainees, General Anthus secured the assignment of 11 Vietnamese aviation cadets to Farmgate. Until they could attend flight training in the United States, the cadets served as the Vietnamese member of every Farmgate crew. Based at Nha Trang, but with a detachment of six T-28s at Da Nang, the second fighter squadron became fully operational in mid-1962. This afforded much-needed air power in the central and northern areas of Vietnam, freeing the first fighter squadron and Farmgate for operations in the south. As a result, Vietnamese and Farmgate sorties multiplied, mainly for interdiction and close support. Still, the Vietnamese asked for too few air missions. They neglected to have aircraft cover convoys and trains, to escort helicopter assault operations, and to fly even more interdiction and close support strikes. But augmenting the Vietnamese Air Force seemed to have been successful. Secretary McNamara was so pleased with the progress that he told General Harkins to firm up a program for a phase-out of major U.S. combat, advisory, and logistic activities within three years. The Secretary was unaware of the glaring deficiencies that impeded the Vietnamese. Pilots continued in short supply, and many of those flying needed more training. The two fighter squadrons had fewer than a dozen qualified flight leaders, and ground personnel were generally inefficient. The T-28s lacked ample firepower and would someday have to be replaced, calling for more pilot training. A lack of proficiency in night and all-weather flying diluted efficiency. Rather than the average of one hour or less, Vietnamese turnaround time between missions averaged between two and three hours. The fastest scramble time for a Vietnamese C-47 flare ship was 40 minutes, and over an hour was normal. The Vietnamese were cleared to operate with a full array of ordnance, but their strike aircraft were armed solely with napalm, rockets, small fragmentation bombs, and cannons. They were reluctant to move aircraft to advanced locations because of poor housing and messing at Da Nang and Pleiku, and the low pay for temporary duty. General Anthus estimated that the two Vietnamese fighter squadrons, with 27 T-28s and 22 AD-6s, should generate 1,470 operational sorties a month, 70% for combat and 30% for training and maintenance. Actually, an average of 7 AD-6s, 11 T-28s, 11 L-19s, and 8 C-47s were available each day to the tactical air control system. Since the number of Vietnamese combat sorties fell short of meeting the rising demands for air missions, Farmgate operations reached high levels. By August, it was clear that Farmgate had to have fresh aircraft and crews. The coming of two new U.S. Army helicopter companies in September meant even greater requirements for escort and supply sorties by strike aircraft. This clashed with Secretary McNamara's desire to phase out American units. General Anthus had foreseen that mission demands would compel Farmgate planes to stretch beyond monthly programmed flying hours. 
He suggested that additional U.S. Air Force units be allocated to Vietnam, chiefly to allow airstrike teams to be kept permanently on station at Play Coup and Sok Trang. 13th Air Force in mid-August sent Farmgate four B-26s from Far East assets. Farmgate continued to fly too many hours, and in September, Anthus asked for 10 more B-26s, 5 T-28s, and 2 C-47s. General Harkins made no reply, but PACAF recommended that the Air Staff put the proposal on the agenda of the October Secretary of Defense Conference. General Walter C. Sweeney, Jr., Commander of Tactical Air Command, and Brigadier General Gilbert L. Pritchard, Special Air Warfare Center Commander, agreed that the Air Force could furnish the planes and crews. However, they cautioned Amthus to go slow in adding to Farmgate until he was completely convinced that the Vietnamese were doing as much as they could. Sweeney did not want Farmgate to become a crutch to compromise progressive and objective development of indigenous capabilities. Allegedly to confuse the Viet Cong, the Vietnamese renumbered their squadrons in September. With the new designations went an emphasis on the organizational unity of the Vietnamese Air Force. Perhaps the structure was partly inspired by the proposal of the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, General George H. Decker, to transfer Vietnamese helicopter and liaison squadrons to the Vietnamese Army. Securing the go-ahead from the air staff in October to give additional aircraft to Farmgate, PACAF suggested this action to SyncPAC. Briefed on October 8th in Hawaii, Defense Secretary McNamara was still bent on building a wholly adequate Vietnamese Air Force. He said that there should not be 130, but 300 or more Vietnamese officers taking flight training in the United States. Since no Vietnamese pilots were in training to fly B-26s, the Secretary asked Admiral Felt to explore the prospect of procuring 30 Chinese nationalists for the Vietnamese C-47s. This would release 30 transport pilots for B-26 transitional training. As for Farmgate expansion, McNamara said, If General Harkins needed a bigger program, he should present his case to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He himself was cool to the idea, for it was contrary to the President's desire to build indigenous forces. Farmgate ought to train Vietnamese rather than to operate. Farmgate operations in August had soared to 65% over those in July, but in September they had to be pruned to 37% of the July totals, owing chiefly to the one crew per aircraft manning ratio not enough to sustain the high rate of missions. The Vietnamese wanted the 11 aviation cadets returned for language training before going on to the United States to become pilots. To furnish the crewmen required on Farmgate planes, the Vietnamese Air Force sent 15 non-commissioned officers to Farmgate. This plugged the gap but was a subterfuge, because the enlisted Vietnamese were uninterested in flight training. When General Mormon, 13th Air Force commander, heard of the arrangement, he urged Anthus to do his best to meet McNamara's wishes. Admiral Felt visited Vietnam in late October and talked with Anthus. He said Vietnamese opposition had scuttled the prospect of using Chinese pilots to fly Vietnamese transports. Any Farmgate growth would have to be small and piecemeal. Acting on Anthus's suggestion to shore up Farmgate, General Harkins in November asked for 5 T-28s, 10 B-26s, and 2 C-47s. More, he said, would likely be required in the future. Admiral Felt routed the request to the Joint Chiefs, adding that he saw no other way to secure the urgently needed combat air power. The Joint Chiefs of Staff well knew that President Kennedy wished the Americans to prepare the Vietnamese to fight their own war. Hence, in November and December, the Chiefs carefully weighed the question of bolstering Farmgate. They likewise plumbed the off-stated position that counterinsurgency was for the most part a ground war, with air forces accounting for maybe 10% of the effort. Some U.S. Air Force officers viewed counting Viet Cong casualties as an unpleasant task and not necessarily a military objective. Even so, statistics on the number of enemy killed, wounded, and captured were important.
In all known cases where ground forces entered areas struck by air, their actual body count exceeded air crew claims. Of the estimated number of enemy casualties in 1962, 28% were due to Vietnamese and American air power. Yet air operations did more. They shrunk the enemy's options, crimped his movements and attacks, flew in men and supplies to assault him, protected surface convoys and trains as well as heliborne assaults, and thwarted the foe from massing large forces in the field. Air power had proved, at least to U.S. Air Force officers, that it held equal rank with ground operations in any counterinsurgency venture. This assessment was not altogether shared in Washington. Following a visit to Southeast Asia in December 1962, Roger Hillsman, Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs, and the President's Special Assistant for Far Eastern Affairs, Michael V. Forrestal, reported, On the use of air power and the danger of adverse political effects, our impression is that the controls on airstrikes and the procedures for checking intelligence against all sources are excellent. In spite of this, however, it is difficult to be sure that air power is being used in a way that minimizes the adverse political effects, and the use of air power is going up enormously. In December, the Joint Chiefs recommended expanding Farmgate so it could keep abreast of the burgeoning requests for air support. The Secretary of Defense concurred, and the State Department agreed, and on the last day of the year, the President approved the requested increase in Farmgate aircraft. End of Chapter 12 Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio